All right, so <laughs> there are probably two other works I've done ever which have been commented on as much as the movie I'm about to look at. Uh, those would be Phantom Menace and the Metal Gear Solid series as a whole. This movie has been dissected, analyzed, reviewed, critiqued all over the place. It is actually the most looked at movie of all the Star Trek movies. As with the previous works, I've made a conscious effort and decision not to go ahead and base any of my work off of theirs or anything that they did. I know Wheaton did a thing. I know Sci-Fi Debris did a thing. You know, leaving it off there for them to do it in their own particular idiom. Not my thing, right? Okay? Just making that clear. My thing is right here talking about my impression, my analysis, my rumination on Generations. Now, Generations is Star Trek Seven, which means it's an odd number, and therefore it's crap and terrible! No, of course not. I actually enjoy this movie. And I've been trying to debate why that is I enjoy this movie. So the very first thing I'm going to say is something controversial that I don't have a lot of proof to back up. Let me give you the facts that we actually know. There were several original scripts that were put together by Brandon Braga and Ronald D. Moore. Now, for those of you who don't know, Ronald Moore and Brandon Braga are an interesting combination situation because both of them are actually quite talented writers in their own fields. Braga's good at head games, uh, mystery, suspense building, tension, that kind of a thing. A great atmospheric writer. Ronald D. Moore is a great character writer who's really good at continuity, putting a setting together, and making things fit. The two of these characters, uh, characters, excuse me, the two of these writers together gave us all good things. Often considered one of the best TNG episodes that there is, and among the best Star Trek that there is in general. These two people are very talented people. I mention this because you, if you're watching this, statistically speaking, you probably have not been watching my Voyager ruminations. And as I've said over there, Braga is not actually a bad writer. He just, there's just situations that I'm not going to repeat here. He gets a lot of flack that I feel is undeserved. And he has gone on to make a decent career for himself. He did 24. Uh, Ronald D. Moore went on to do uh, Battlestar Galactica, so that's great for him. These two men should have made an amazing film. By the way, they actually made the script for this film while they were working on the script for All Good Things. So all of this is still fact, okay? Other than my opinion on their quality. That's obviously opinion, but... The other thing that's fact is they are both quoted as recently as within the last few years as having just struggled with this script, had so many issues, and constantly had to rework it, and it just wasn't working, and it wasn't fitting, and it wasn't fitting. We also know this script was a severe case of executive meddling. We don't know exactly who meddled. Most of the accounts simply say Paramount. Now, Paramount doesn't meddle. A person meddles. Individuals meddle. A team meddles. The whole of Paramount did not descend from on high all however many thousand people and say, Thou shalt change this. No. So we don't actually know who was behind that. We do know two people who meddled. Rick Berman and Jerry Taylor. I have spit a lot of venom at these two people over in my Voyager ruminations, and I to this day can't stand Rick Berman and would probably punch him in the face if I had a cho uh, ch chance to do so. Right up there with Maurice Hurley, as far as people I can't stand in the Star Trek franchise. Now, another thing we know about it is that the original script was completely different. The original uh, script that Braga and uh, Moore put out, totally different thing, right? There are a few other facts, but the rest of this is now conjecture, okay? Because, well, okay, one of the other things we know is that they were on a very unusual situation. They were The studio was happy to put out a new Star Trek film, because Star Trek at this point was doing pretty well. Deep Space Nine had just started, you know, all this fun stuff. Voyager was going to be starting soon, so yeah, we'll go ahead and put out a TNG film. 
Work was done on this before TNG was even, you know, finished. The series was still going when they started working on Generations. And yet, like Star Trek 1 and Star Trek 5, there were a lot of behind-the-scenes problems. And one of the biggest complaints that Braga and Moore both had was that a lot of the script was dictated to them. This brings me to my theory. Having rewatched this with full analysis mode on, I present to you what I feel is a rough reconstruction of what the original script would have been. And I will give my opinion on it, and then ask you your opinion on it. You know, so you, obviously you can devise... And I'll ask you your opinion first, so you can feel free to give it. Um, you know, I, I don't want to taint your opinion with mine. Imagine a story in which Kirk... Well, okay... In the original script, uh, Kirk ends up getting time-warped into the future, right? By this by this strange energy distortion that he encounters. That's the Nexus, or whatever, the Ribbon. It probably wasn't called that back then. He is presumed dead and missing. This is the end of James T. Kirk and the Star Trek franchise in character up to the point of the movie. So then Enterprise-D is there, and they get this distress call from this facility. And they go, and they rush to the rescue, and there's this pitched battle against the Romulans. Now... Just a little point, side note, we know for a fact that the pitch battle with the Romulans was supposed to happen, so just pointing that out. Anyway, so they had this pitch battle with the Romulans, and it was this exciting thing, and they, they barely pushed through it, and they found out that the Romulans were there looking for a specific, rather interesting and deranged scientist who has an unusual sense of ethics and morality to the point where he's basically making things because he can make them, science for science's sake. And they believe he has devised a way to actually stabilize a, a form of trilithium in order to collapse stars, which the Romulan Empire obviously has a great deal of interest in. Not just to go ahead and use against other empires as a weapon, but to ensure nobody else has it. Parallels to Genesis device being obvious here. I'm just going to mention them in brief. So they have this uh, big series of intrigue where they try to piece together the puzzles. They find out that the Klingons have been involved with, that the Romulans have called in their last few favors with the Duras sisters, with whatever Klingons still remain loyal to the Romulan forces, and or, or at least can be bribed to the Romulan forces. And they, and they discover that forces within the Federation have had this issue as well. And, and they finally discover the truth that the Romulans have been supporting this thing all along, you know, blah, 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 everything I'd already just told you. They, they lead up to that mystery. Again, Braga's good at construction of mystery and, and suspense, so he could probably do that kind of thing. And we lead to this final climactic showdown where the Enterprise is there and they're fighting the, you know, the Romulan ship which has the technology and has the device on it and the scientist is there and he's kind of deranged, of course, and is, is literally just working uh, fastidiously away in his thing, trying to make everything work and the Romulans are refusing to go and Kirk... This is when Kirk re-enters the film, warped here, having no idea what's going on, trying to cope with the situation, ends up saving uh, the, whoever actually was sent over his lives, sends whoever's over there back over to the Enterprise. Or no, he's, he's rescued, he's rescued, excuse me, that's right, uh, that's how the construction of this worked. He is rescued, brought back to the Enterprise, and they're trying to deal with the Romulan ship, and finally Kirk realizes, you know, this is Kobayashi Maru scenario, again, parallels to Star Trek II. There are several that were intended in the script, which is why I keep pulling those into this. And the that's another non-conjecture point. They, they wanted several parallels to Wrath of Khan. Anyways, he gets on the uh, the, the ship. 
uh, one half of the ship, which half it is doesn't matter. He gets on one half of the ship, basically by himself, evacuates the other half. This is his answer to the Kobayashi Maru, as uh, paralleled by Spock's decision. He takes the ship, rams it into the Romulan ship, taking out the device before it could destroy this star, wiping out whoever happens to be there. By the way, it wasn't just going to be some random people. It was going to be something you know with significance to it. <laughs> if you'll forgive me for being blunt, I can only conjecture at what it would be, but, oh, I don't know, Earth would be a good choice. But anyways, so he, Kirk saves Earth, saves the Enterprise one last time by literally going down with the ship and ramming the Romulan ship, destroying the scientist, destroying the uh, destroying the device, destroying all the technology so they have no way to reproduce it, sending the rest of the Enterprise away, saving, saving the Enterprise on the bridge, I feel like pointing out. The end, right? And there's, there's a lot of themes that run through that. The theme of making a difference. The theme of uh, how you deal with loss and remorse. The theme of responsibility and, and, and growing old, that kind of a thing. Uh, the themes of ethics with regards to scientific progress and whether or not things should or can be used. And if you notice, there's also a bit of moral ambiguity, which would be very much Ronald Moore's style. He's very good at that kind of a thing. Now, all of this, with the exception of the little notes I made, is conjecture. Go ahead and feel free to tell me what you think of this original idea for the Generation script. The most often comment I expect to hear is, well, that sounds like a typical Star Trek thing. Very normal, nothing unexpected. But to me, that sounds way better than what we actually got. Now, now that I've given you my big theory that the original script was a completely different story, let's go ahead and mention a few uh, other little tidbits here. First of all... There is, I remember I mentioned back in Star Trek 1 that the script literally was multiple scripts mashed together. We have a very similar situation here with regards to Star Trek 7. It is very obvious when the tone and the styling of the script literally shifts perspective, styles, thematic significance, etc. to the point where it might as well be a completely different script inserting itself into the movie in place of the other script. In fact, I believe one of the critics at the time when this came out specifically said it's like three Star Trek episodes combined, which also has to happen elements of a movie to it. And it shows throughout the course of the work. Now I want to restress, I like this movie. Why is that? Well, it's not because of the Star Trek V factor. I don't consider this a bad movie that I can enjoy making fun of, like Star Trek V was. Um, it's actually mostly because of the fact that there's a lot of genuine enthusiasm on display. A lot of the actors really were putting forth their best and doing their best jobs. And there's always been great chemistry between the TNG cast. It's probably the thing the TNG cast has pretty much got the lockdown on. Of all the Star Treks, the TNG cast really felt like family more than any other show, at least to me personally. And I felt like that really came through onto the big screen. A lot of little subtle details. Like, for example, Picard is obviously horribly troubled. And so Troy comes and says, you know, are you all right? And Picard says, you know, leave me alone, basically. Troy then leaves him alone. Doesn't push him. Doesn't press. Riker picks up on this. Of course Riker does. He's practically Picard's son. Riker doesn't press either. Riker just asks, Riker says, do you need anything? And he's, he doesn't even finish his sentence. Picard says, no. The implication is clear. Again, it's that family bond. Riker knows Picard well enough to know that, that something's wrong. I mean, duh, any, a blind lemur could tell something's wrong. But Riker knows him well enough to know that something's wrong, and he shouldn't press it. They so said, leave it be. Let Picard work it out on his own. But he still felt the need to demonstrate by his question that he was there for Picard if Picard wanted him. It's that family feeling. I feel like that is one of the things that really comes across in this movie. There's also some decently good effects. You know, ILM, as, as usual, does their good stuff. Um, there's some really good uh, presentation of certain things. Some of the music is really nice. 
And it's really funny because this is a script that is so bad that the writers themselves have derided it, have, have spoken ill of it, have apologized for it. This is a script with plot holes you can drive the Enterprise D through, and they know it. So how much of that was the actual writer's fault? Well, I mention this because this is a funny fact. I'm actually asked rather often. Here is, in, you know, Arshingaya, or whatever you're calling me at this point in time. Here's person A. Person A usually does B very well. He didn't. He or she then did B, but it was not good. Why is that? Well, I usually answer that question with two generalized answers. Number one, everyone has an off day. You know, no one's ever, no one's going to do good work all the time. That's not how that works. You know, we're only flawed, right? But number two reason is external meddling. Let's say that you have a story dictated to you, and you are restrained by what they insist on you doing, and you then try to do your own story within the confines of that, those restraints, and it just kind of falls apart, and what you have is Star Trek V. Yes, I'm actually defending Star Trek V here. I still think Shatner's premise at the beginning was flawed, and I don't think it would have been a good movie, even if the executive mentally hadn't existed, but I think it would have been a better movie. But that's the reality of life, and that's one of the reasons why I also criticize Star Trek V. It doesn't get a free pass just because it has Star Trek in the name. You know, this happens. You work with what you got. It sucks, but it's true. Regardless, that's kind of the generations in a nutshell. And I'll be going over details of things that were changed as I go through this, but... There is one other big reason why I enjoy Generations, and it's weird. Rewatching it with analysis mode, it became obvious how much this has affected my enjoyment of this film. The book. The novelization of Generations, First Contact, and uh, Insurrection, and Nemesis, they're all good. I recommend all of them. In all of them, except for the case of First Contact, I think they're better than the movies. I think the Generations, uh, Insurrection, and Nemesis novelizations are better than the movies. Generations novel really goes into a lot more detail on Soren, actually makes him a character. I never realized Soren isn't actually a character until I rewatched this movie with analysis mode on. I was like, oh yeah, he's not a character. He's a caricature of a mad scientist who happens to be played by a good actor, and so I felt like he had character because there's some nuance to his performance, but there's no actual subtlety to his characterization or character growth or anything whatsoever. Generations turns into the book turns him into a character. Generations goes into the the, the book goes into the, the mindset of Picard more goes into Geordi's mindset more. Really helps flesh out what was happening with the Klingons. You know, really helps flesh out how the Nexus works. You know, blah 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 blah. So I highly recommend it. I'm also not going to comment on a lot of things I mentioned earlier. This is a very well talked about movie, and I'm. More than ever before, I have decided, with the exception of things I feel are necessary to point out, like the executive meddling, I'm not going to talk about the behind-the-scenes stuff in this one. There's a lot of behind-the-scenes stuff. If you're interested, you know, there's tons of stuff you can read, watch, check out on tons and tons and tons of information on this movie and the next three, uh, four movies or six movies, whatever. However many are left at this point. But I'm not going to comment on, for example, the new sets or the new costume designs, or the changes in lighting, or the fact that they all altered some of the props, or any of that stuff. You know, I'm, I'm not going to talk about all that. It's leaving it alone. Final note here. One of the biggest flaws in this entire movie, in my opinion, comes from a fallacy, which I suppose isn't that surprising. Some people accuse me, rather often, actually, of being a typical writer. I don't do unusual, out-of-the-ordinary stories. I don't do the kind of thing that challenges your mind or makes you think of new and engaging ideas. I don't do the kind of thing that, that blows your mind. I don't gotta do the kind of stories that you aren't expecting. I don't try to pull the twist. 
I don't try to, you know, I try to go for the moment, the oh god moment, but never a twist. I don't, I don't, I, I, it's a very, I've talked about this before, it's a different approach to writing style. Please don't sneeze. Oh god. Oh, my allergies have been killing me all week. Um, it's a, and so I, I'm a very typical writer, and I'll admit that. And it's always said derogatorily. 100% of the time someone says that they're saying it as an insult. I don't take that as an insult. Sorry, guys. So if you're going to try and insult me on that, go away. But I mention this because one of my biggest reasons for disliking the idea of different for difference sake... Generations is probably one of the best textbook examples I can think of, uh, other than Mass Effect 3, of trying to do different for different sake and it failing completely on its face. When you are more focused on either taking the audience by surprise or engaging them in something unusual or, and I quote here, doing the unexpected, than actually making, oh, I don't know, a good script, you are far more likely to fail and produce Star Trek Generations or Mass Effect 3. Or a dozen other examples I could get out, which I'm not going to get into names. Jerry Taylor, specifically, is pretty much the linchpin of, why don't you do something unexpected? Why don't you do something different? Big space Romulan battle? Nah, do something unexpected. Promote Worf instead on a, on a, sh on a boat. Nobody's going to be expecting that. Jerry Taylor is also the reason why Kirk didn't get a satisfying death. Like, to a T. I mean, I'll be talking about that much later, but... Just pointing, 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 pointing that out here. So, it's nice to see that even in the 23rd century, there are obnoxious news people. <laughs> okay. Real quick, I mentioned that I would be giving some sort of evidence, or rather, I, I guess I should say that there's a lot of evidence, in my opinion, in the construction of this script, that the original script idea is as I have speculated it is, right? One of my biggest pieces of evidence is like the first 10 minutes of the film. From the beginning of the film, well, from the, basically from the beginning of the film, up to and including the f death of Kirk, uh, a.k.a. The, the, the salvation of the people on the Lakul, uh, the Alorians getting off, the Enterprise B escaping, up to that wonderful scene, that all is constructed more or less flawlessly. If you'll forgive me for being blunt, it's actually really good. It's good stuff. There were some flaws with it, some problems with it, but it's my favorite section of the movie. I actually teared up. Rewatching it this time, because it was such a satisfying death for Captain Kirk dying. I'll get into that when I get there. Point is, this whole thing is constructed like the whole movie was going to be constructed. Very typical, very well executed, very character driven, very in character. Awesome stuff. And then there's the rest of the movie. I digress. So it's nice to know there's still obnoxious news people in the future. It's also nice to know that they're there because... It's a wonderfully morbid subtlety that most people probably wouldn't even uh, think about. All these news people are there to, to document the, the launching of the Enterprise B. Why is it we've never seen this kind of thing before? Well, maybe it's kind of a new thing in, in, in Starfleet. Maybe, maybe, I don't know. No, it's because Kirk and crew are there. It's because Kirk, Chekhov, and Scotty are there. They're not there to see the Enterprise B. The funny thing is that is exactly what they do see. Not the Enterprise B. The one mission where Kirk dies, the legend, arguably the single most legendary figure in the history of the entire Federation, dies on the mission where there happened to be camera crew on board to document the whole damn thing. Demora Sulu, 
is awesome. There's several themes working throughout this work. Uh, Demora Sulu fits very nicely into the generational slash legacy theme, which I'm going to mention briefly here, but I'll be talking about it extensively as we go through, as I point out, you know, this is about this theme, this is about this theme. The idea that it's actually funny because on the on the surface level, it's obviously uh, Sulu, Hikaru Sulu, passing on his his generation, his, you know, his daughter now taking up the helm of the new enterprise, right? But it's actually a more subtle nod towards Chekhov, who at this point in time is effectively an old man now. Not, I don't mean as a bad man. I mean as a venerated thing. He has moved on. He is. He will eventually become an admiral in Starfleet. Starfleet security, you know. He used to be just a helmsman. He used to be just up there at the con, and he, you know, he mentioned that that quote was I, I was never that young. And Shat and Kirk responds, "No, you were younger." It's true. Pavel Chekhov, when he joined the crew, was young. Walter Koenig was much younger than most of the rest of the cast when he start, uh, joined them in the original series. And it shows. It's that new generation, that seeing seeing the next thing off, the legacy concept. I'll get to that again more as we go through. I like how the scene shifts throughout the course. If you count from the beginning, where everyone's just being patronizing and... I don't have a good word for it. Imagine a lot of people are treating you like you're, like, I mean, out of love and respect, these people are treating you with great care and delicacy, and they're offering to do things, and they're applauding you, even though you do something minor or insignificant, and they're not doing it to be patronizing. They're not doing it to mock you. They're not doing it to have any negative effect on you at all. They're doing it because they have genuine admiration for you. And it starts from that awkward start to the point where, Kirk and, and Chekhov and Scotty just take command, take control, know exactly what they're doing. It shows that despite all the time that has passed, there's a reason these three men have this level of, of admiration and respect. They're just walking around stumbling, awkward, fake smiles. Oh, yeah, everything's fine, fine. But the moment a crisis hits, that switch is flipped, and they're back into business mode. And they help save the ship and the, the people on the Orion. If they hadn't, we wouldn't have had Guinan just to name one thing that would have been changed by this. And that one thing would have had a rather significant impact, wouldn't it have, if you think about it. I like that. Now, <laughs> remember how I mentioned back in Star Trek 1 and 2 and 4, no, and 5, and I think that's it. Anyways, there was only one ship in range, right? Only one ship in range. Um... This, they are, they just clear the asteroid belt. As in, they're still in the soul system when they get a distress call from three light years away. Just for a little bit of stellar thought, that's basically Alpha Centauri. Uh, I, I'm, I'm a little off in my exact numbers, but that's right next door. That's like a quick hop. That's like me literally going across the street in Star Trek terms, okay? Three light years is nothing. And there's the only ship in range, three light years from Earth, is the Enterprise B on its maiden voyage, and it's an incomplete ship. So Earth is defenseless. Again. <laughs> and then we come into that incompetent captain thing. Remember I mentioned how the exception was the gentleman in two whose name I can never remember, but he's awesome. Was it Tony Todd? Is that the name of the actor? Anyways, um, awesome captain. Uh, awesome job of that. The only competent captain in Star Trek. because, And we saw that in three... And we saw that a little bit uh, elsewise, but it, 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 it really comes through here as well, because Harriman is, is like the kind of guy where I look at you and I'm like, why are you a captain? Why are you a captain? 
Okay, this is a navy. I know how a navy works. You know how a navy works? I'll, I'll go ahead and give you this. Picture a navy as like a giant circle with all the... It's, it's not actually a circle, but it's... All these pieces are connected to this one inner part, and they're all circling around this inner part. And, you know, here's the admiralty, here's the ships, here's the commander, here's the crew, here's the decks, here's the discipline, here's all this different stuff that makes up a navy. You know what this thing in the middle is? This is the captain's chair. The captains make a navy, and everyone knows that. And Harriman is the kind of guy I look at and I could think, well, I could see him being a lieutenant. Maybe a lieutenant commander. Someone who's still getting his first actual, you know, line duty and actually being an officer. But he's a captain of the Enterprise. That being said, one thing I like, and it's a very subtle touch. I don't think it... I don't think... I've ever heard anyone else comment on this, so I feel like I must. Harriman does one thing that really elevates him in my eyes. He gives up command of his ship. I'm not talking about when he asked Kirk for help. That was obvious. Swallowing his pride for that, that's nothing. Anyone should be able to do that. He tells Kirk without hesitation, you take the bridge, I will go do this. Being willing to swallow your pride that hard, turn over your ship, which you just got, I might add, to someone else entirely, that speaks to something of the metal of the man. And I like that because it says something about the man Harriman would likely become, the kind of captain he could become. And I like that little touch. So then they fling Technobabble at us. This is late TNG, which means tech that we're basically effectively in the era of Technobabble now. Uh, early TNG really wasn't. And then the further TNG got, the more Technobabble heavy it got, especially Season 7. Deep Space Nine partially bypassed the Technobabble thing. It still had its issues. And then Voyager took Technobabble and made like a fort out of it. Which they then Technobabbled to make stronger. With Quantum. But the point is, this this it actually struck me after watching Star Trek 1 through 6, literally in a row. Uh, going to this movie was just like like a slap in the face with how much Technobabble is just smeared all over the script. It's weird. And it just kind of struck me as odd. I just feel like mentioning that. It'll come up later in a much worse way though. So Kirk's, Kirk's arc from 1 to 6 has all been about the fact that he is an old man, but at the same time, I feel young. He may have made mistakes and is a flawed person, but he is still capable of doing good, of making a difference, of helping out. It is ironic because I said Kirk's arc ends in 6, but truthfully, Kirk's arc ends right here. Not later in the movie, at Kirk's real death. Kirk dies, lays down his life without hesitation for the sake of people he's never met on, on, and, and for the sake of this ship that he's never been on, brand new ship, and he does it instantly and without hesitation. He dies saving the Enterprise, saving the Elorians, and arguably saving a lot more people when you think about it. That's Kirk. And he does it, too. He succeeds at it. That's important, too, because that's also Kirk. Makes it work, even though it shouldn't have worked. That's why I call this the real death of Captain Kirk, because the later death is... we'll get there. But this one is so in keeping. This is why I every time when I see him, he says, you know, keep, keep her in one piece, and Scotty says, I always do, and Kirk smiles as he backs up into the turbo lift. I start tearing up every time I see that, because I know it's coming. That moment gets me, even knowing he comes back. That moment gets me. And so all of this construction is amazing. I'm just checking my notes here really quick. Sorry. I, there was, the way that they even say it, it's perfect because 
what okay one of the thing a little tip here in writing don't spend too much time on something i know when you want to make something significant you want to spend time on it as a writer you want to get it across you want to emphasize it i do this all the time it's actually one of my biggest flaws as a writer i want to keep emphasizing it's also my biggest flaws as a gm this thing is huge and giant and gargantuan and um because i feel like i'm not getting it across i get that but, the, but there's a fine balance point. Don't put too little emphasis. Star Trek Three made that mistake. Star Trek Three put almost no emphasis on the death of Marcus, uh, David Marcus, and the destruction of the Enterprise. However, Star Trek, uh, well, this movie, puts too much emphasis on something later on, which detracts from its impact. But I feel like a very excellent sweet spot was found here, and ironically in Star Trek Two, The ship buckles. We never see Kirk die. We never see any of that happen. The ship buckles, and we go to the bridge, and you did it, Kirk! And then Demora just saying, well, we have damage on decks 13, 14, and then she just catches herself and says, and 15. And the moment she says it, you realize, as she realizes, and everyone, in the, I remember seeing this in the theaters, and there was an audible gasp when we realized what was going on. Like, you know, oh my God. And Scotty's like, Kirk, yeah, Scotty to Captain Kirk. Captain Kirk, please respond. And then they go down there and, you know, Chekhov's line, was anyone in here? And Scotty can only reply, I. And the camera pans out from the ship. That, that was powerful. Not too much emphasis. Not too little. Beautiful, beautiful center point. I love the first section of this movie. I really do. I could gush about it for forever. Then we ship to the point of the sea. <laughs> I'm sorry, I just remember, Sci-Fi Debris, when he was doing a video on this movie, he did this thing where, yo-ho, yo-he, I'm a pointless scene. Because it is, it's freaking pointless. I love Worf as much as anyone, and I love seeing the cast just interacting as much as anyone. But it is a pointless scene, which is interrupting the plot. It has nothing to do with anything. There are several themes, arguably four. I would argue that two of them are effectively the same thing. But there's three or four themes running throughout the course of this film. And this scene has nothing to do with any of that. It doesn't even evolve the characters any, other than the fact that it gives another point for Data trying to get the humor chip. And I stress that another, because it's not like it's the first time he's failed to understand humor, is it? So, not the worst time possible, I feel like pointing out. So, I like Worf, and I like the interaction with the crew. I love the chemistry between them. But every time I watch this, I just think, man, I could be watching an awesome Romulan space battle of awesome right now. I know that sounds weird coming from me, but... Shrug. So, really nice small touch here. Picard and Kirk both share a similar fondness for antiquities, which is only really touched on in Star Trek II, another one of those allusions to Star Trek II. But we've known about this for Picard for some time, I and mean, we've had seven years to get used to the man. Um, I mentioned the, this earlier. Troy notices the grief, but doesn't confront him about it immediately. Again, very nice touch there. Lots of great touch in the background. I really want to give uh, props to the prop department. Uh, they really did a good job with a lot of the stuff. There's a huge amount of, like in in uh, Data's room and in Picard's Red Room especially, there's a lot of props from the show, just as little tidbits. It's partially there for the fans, but it's also partially there to, there to show that this is a ship that is lived in. And that's part of the theme, one of the themes, so that's really good. Uh, so, so then Jordy helps Data install his chip. Um, why now? <laughs> I mean, I don't actually get that. I, mean, I, I I get that Data wants to evolve as a being. I really do. And I totally am okay with that, as, as, as apocryphal as that sounds. But 
they're in the middle of a tense investigation with potential Romulan interaction and a, a station where a lot of people have just died and they're trying to figure out what the hell's going on and could you install emotions in me? Whatever. I'm, I'm really blazing through this movie a bit quick. I don't actually have that many things to say about this movie in all honesty. Let me mention one thing here really quick. Brent Spiner, this will come up much more later, Brent Spiner hit a very so sweet mark uh, throughout TNG of playing Data. Emotionless, but not boring, is harder to pull off in acting than you'd think. He is fully logical, fully ethical, and it's difficult to pull off the exact blend of basically an android like Data did, like Brent Spiner did. He, he really nailed the part. He's an excellent and talented actor. And apparently kind of a jackass. I don't know. I, I've met the man in person. He was pretty cool in person, but whatever. Um, this is also a man who played his own brother and his own father in the same episode, I might add. But anyways, I mention this because after Star Trek 7, 9, and 9, and by 10 especially, Spiner felt like he just had no idea what was going on with his character. Like he didn't know how to play his own character anymore. And it really shows in this movie and later things. I'll, I'll get to that, but I just felt like mentioning that here. Uh, I like the 10 forward scene. Like, I really do. I'm curious why exactly it is that Guinan couldn't sense Soren earlier or see him. But in the interest of being positive as well, let me mention this. In addition to those plot holes, let's, let's point out the fact that I like the fact that 10 forward is crowded. One of the things that has always been a problem on TNG is they don't have the budget for as many extras and, and uniforms as they'd like. So most of the time, 10 Forward has like 20 people in it, total. It's a big set, by the way. I don't know if you've seen the whole thing. And so, yeah. In this thing, they have like 30, 40 people, and it actually looks like 10 Forward should be. A lot of people there, a lot of people kibitzing, a lot of people interacting. I like that. It made it feel like 10 Forward always was, if you know what I mean by saying that. I also really like the scene with Data. This is one of the things I feel like they did spot on with Data's character development in this episode. Or this is in this movie, excuse me. You know. I I can't I don't even know how to explain it. The it's it's so wonderful because not only is it really funny to watch, you know, I hate this! It is revolting! More? Please! You know, and not only is that hilarious, my friends and I were quoting that for like a year after this movie came out. But in addition to that, it's very in character. Imagine you've never really felt emotions before, not really, and all of a sudden you are feeling emotions. The first emotion you feel is going to be a fascinating, engaging experience. It doesn't matter what that emotion is. It's an emotion. It's new. It's interesting. It's engaging. It's exciting. I've seen other works of fiction uh, do this kind of thing with things like pain. The idea of first encountering pain for the first time being like, oh my god, this is engaging, you know? And, and other things that would normally be considered negatives by people who are used to those feelings because of the fact that they're... You, you get where this is going. So I like the way that, that unfolded. Um, Malcolm McDowell, who played Dr. Soren, it's such a shame. He's a great actor. He does some good stuff in general. And he himself is reported as being really dissatisfied with his role in this movie. And I'll exp I've already explained to you why. It's because he doesn't have a character. I, and I don't want to sound derogatory. Because it, it's not the actor's fault. It's barely even the writer's fault. He is, insert bad guy A. Mad scientist, wants to get back to the Nexus. That's it. 
the only note of subtlety was actually done at the behest of McDowell himself, that timepiece he always carries with him. And it's something that he felt connected with the overall theme of the piece, and I agree. One of the themes of this piece overall is <sighs> aging, time, that kind of a thing, and uh, how we deal with it how we move on from it or how we don't move on from it. And of course, all of this could be described by the word entropy, but you get the idea. And so him constantly having that timepiece, it was a subtle touch, but showed how much Soren was constantly fixated and obsessed at all points in time, no pun intended, he was always thinking about his ultimate goal to escape time, to bypass this entire situation and this entire deplorable universe that he just wanted to leave and never come back to. It's no wonder he was willing to basically trash it to get out. Uh, I'll get to that in a moment. So, yeah, Data, right? Okay. Spiner when was like, you know, they were telling Data, we want you to act like you're listening to every joke you've ever heard in your life in your head. Spiner went on set, did a few takes, and said, I have no idea how to do this. And the director said, I want you to be annoying. I don't even remember who directed this film. It's not a particularly good director. Uh, he's not bad. He's just not that good. But, um, yeah, they actually wanted... Data to be an annoying character. They wanted to be him to be as annoying as possible. Let's name the two most obvious problems with that right off the top of my head. Number one, you're taking a beloved character, arguably the second most popular character in TNG, and among the most popular characters in Star Trek as a whole. This is frickin' Data we're talking about here. And turning him into an annoying character on purpose, which brings me to point two. As I've said before, while you may get some points because you're doing it deliberately... Deliberately annoying is still annoying. And the whole, it was actually grating on my nerves rewatching the scene. And I just felt so bad. Because you can see Spiner is just forcing it. Literally forcing himself to do this mock laugh this whole time. Because he has no idea how to act like this. This is why I said I'd bring it up again. It's really obvious. There is a nice subtlety in this scene, which is bizarre. This, this movie is so weird. It's like good and bad in the same scene. So we've got Data, who's turning into a Batman villain on the side, the, the fake laughter guy. And then we've got Jordy, who is wonderfully human. How? He's obviously irritated, but he doesn't voice it. Why would he? He's Data's friend. He understands what this means to Data to finally be able to experience laughter, to finally be able to experience amusement and humor. It's been something that's eluded him for years. So Jordy bites his tongue. It irritates him, yeah, but he understands. He also understands that Data doesn't know how to deal with this. Other people have had emotions for, you know, their whole lives. They know how to keep things under wraps. They know how to keep things controlled or moderated or otherwise not annoying. So Data doesn't. That makes sense. I'm not arguing that. And so Jordy's reaction is wonderfully human and very Jordy. He's always been much, uh, very much an idealist kind of a person in general. Yeah, and uh, I like that presentation of, of how he, he presents that uh, to Data I love that and it takes basically until the situation has gotten actually deadly serious for Jordy to finally snap at Data and I love the fact that when Data responds in kind it is with concern now that it's been brought to Data's attention Data is like okay I will stop and, and again this is never stated but it's wonderfully subtle Data's been allowing himself, indulging in humor. But now it's like, now the situation's serious. Data recognizes this, and he's like, okay, serious mode on, right? But he can't. And the panic in his voice is palpable. And Spiner does a good job of this. He's, he just freaks out, literally, as his emotionship overwhelms him. Because he can't turn, he's trying to turn it off, and he can't. 
So, like I said, this movie is so weird. It is good and bad in the same scene. I also like the fact that Data was paralyzed with fear. And again, Spiner did a good job of that one, too. Soren approaches him after having injured Jordy, and Data, I could think of like five ways right off the top of my head where Data could completely curb stomp Soren without injury to himself or anything else. He has the reflexes, he has the speed, he has the power. He has the mind to actually calculate how to do all this stuff. But he is being overwhelmed with something he has never felt before in his entire life. Paralyzing fear. And the funny thing is, I actually had this wonderful thought when I was rewatching this. You know that uneasy feeling, that hesitant fear you get when you're about to do something? And it's not like a big deal, but you know, you're just like, eh, you know, holding your breath kind of a thing? Wouldn't it be horrific and yet wonderfully wonderful, or wonderfully ironic, if Data had been feeling that level of fear? Minor, normal, mundane, the kind of thing some of us feel every day. And yet he was so unused to the very concept of fear that it crushed him that he lacked the ability to deal with it. And so he cowered like a kitten because he literally could not comprehend the level of fear because it was greater than zero that he was feeling. Because remember, any number that is greater than zero is infinitely greater than zero. You see where I'm going with this? Now, let's talk about the next scene where Picard is talking about what happened with Rene. First of all, Rene burning to death in a fire along with uh, I suddenly can't think of his name, Picard's brother, is horrifying. Burning to death is a horrible, horrible, horrible way to go. I admit, I, f I find myself wondering how the hell that even happened in an age of, of this technological advancement where there are so many different ways they could bypass that or try to sa salvage or save the situation. For them to burn to death in a fire, what the crap? I'm not complaining. It just speaks to the horror of the situation. Patrick Stewart really nails the grief he's feeling. He does it perfectly. Too many actors, when they're grieving, like to do what Haley, Haley Berry does. If you've seen X-Men 3, uh, Last Stand, remember the scene where, spoiler alert for a dumb movie, uh, there's a scene where Patrick Stewart <laughs> dies, okay? Yeah. And um, in that scene, Haley Berry is just, no, sob, sob, sob. Most actors go that route when they portray grief. In that same scene, a much better actor, Ian McKellen, portrays his grief with total silence. Rewatch that scene sometime. Seriously, find it, find it on YouTube or whatever. Watch how, watch Ian McKellen's face. There's more grief on his face and in his silence than in her racked sobs. I mention this because it's actually harder to act grieving than you'd think. Because we don't act in a static way when we're grieving. And Picard shows this. Patrick Stewart shows this when he's portraying Picard. He's pauses every now and again, and he just and he catches himself, and he says, Oh, okay, no, it's right. And he tries to consult Troy, and it's okay, and he's very human. It's very believable that he is genuinely going through racking grief in this situation. But one thing I'm asked most often is, Why is Picard, a man most known for his discipline, of all things, a man that a Vulcan came to and said, can I borrow your discipline? Why is Picard so hit by this? Well, this brings me up to that theme again, that theme of, ironically, generations. I've always felt like that's one of the biggest reasons for the name of this film. It's not the Kirk to Picard thing. It's the fact that one of the biggest themes of this movie is passing the torch from one generation to the next, the idea of a legacy. I already talked about that with Sulu, uh, right? Demar Sulu and Chekhov. It's actually all over the place if you think about it. Kirk does it to Harriman as well, back in that thing. There's also a situation where uh, 
you know what, I don't want to go over the individuals. There's several examples of it throughout the course of this, uh, this work of generational work, passing on the legacy, that kind of thing. But my favorite is this one right here because Picard suddenly lacks the ability to do this. In his own words, the family will go on. But now Picard is racked with grief, not just because he loved his nephew, because of course he did. Not just because he loved his brother, although he barely mentions him. But because it's, it's worse. It's so much worse because now there is no future. Now there is no more Picard. He will not have a legacy. He will not have a new generation. Picard is racked with horrifying grief at what is effectively the death of his family. And he tries to overcome that, succeeds in many ways. That's the other theme, and that ties in, and it's actually a really nice subtle touch. As Picard is dealing with this grief, that's the second theme, right? How we deal with loss, how we deal with time, aging, how we move on or don't, right? As he's doing that, the sun goes dark. Which is, of course, a wonderfully blatant metaphor, but also a much more literal metaphor. Because of the fact that that's... It's not even a metaphor at that point. The sun is going dark because Soren also lost his family and didn't let go, couldn't cope, couldn't deal with the grief. The book goes into more de detail on this one, so forgive me for borrowing something from the book. But in the book, it's made clear that when the, the El Orion ship manages to get caught by the, the, the Nexus, he doesn't try to contest it. Everyone is running around, screaming, crying. He's sitting there at, con at peace. He's ready to die. He actually ejected a pod towards the Borg cube to kill himself once he watched his family die. He's, he's done. That was how he dealt with that pain. That's how he coped. There's also a wonderful juxtaposition between him and Guinan in the movie. Guinan and Soren both experienced the Nexus. Soren became obsessed and fixated on it to the point where he would spend 78 years. Think about how long that is for a moment. 78 years driving all of his intellect and skill and cunning and ability in towards getting back. I'll talk about that in a bit, by the way. Guinan moved on with her life. Now, I don't want to undersell that. That's a hard thing to do. It really is. But that's the point of that theme, isn't it? How we deal with grief, how we deal with death is at least as important as how we deal with life, wouldn't you say? I'm sorry, but that quote fits here perfectly. And is another allusion to Star Trek too, I might add. How we actually function after something happens to us, and if we function, speaks volumes of our character and what we are as people. It says a lot for Guinan that the quiet, generally demure-looking woman who portrays herself as the soft-spoken type, who has also proven to be very strong-willed and, and disciplined and all that fun stuff in the past, is also the kind of woman who is fully capable of withstanding that kind of pain and moving on from it. And Picard himself moves on from his pain in this one. But I'll get more to that in a little bit. Um, so then there's the shockwave. This is my second favorite scene in the film. It's probably the only other scene that has genuine tension in it. They, the shockwave is shut up by the star. A wonderfully low music tone is playing. And we've discovered it's a level 12 shockwave, which we don't have context for. But anybody who understands anything about science fiction knows this is a star killer, which generally means the whole system's going bye-bye, right? I say that kind of, I say that so casually, that's a big freaking deal, okay? 
the Sun Crusher wishes it that it was that awesome. It, I'm kidding. The Sun Crusher does the exact same thing. The point is, this is a really horrifying thing. And they get across that point. There's a wonderful shot where you see the star and then the shockwave is expanding in the distance. And of course, it's physically impossible to see it like that. But it's still really uh, appropriate for the dread of the scene. Then they get in and they're like, oh god, we gotta get Soren. Soren beams away in a Klingon bird of prey. Huh? And then they get out and they literally are like, warp one, engage! Literally get away seconds ahead of the shockwave. Great scene, great energy, love it. The Duras sisters... I, okay, let's go back to Sauron. I mentioned that there's uh, subtlety to him that exists basically solely in the book. One of those subtleties is the fact that he is utterly fearless. It's not that he's actually suicidal at this point in time, because he actively wants to live. He wants to get back to the Nexus. It's not that he's fatalist. He is literally fearless. He's got that same in fact that I've always felt like the Joker, Heath Ledger's Joker specifically, had. That that's one of his defining qualities. He is completely fearless, so you cannot coerce him or otherwise convince him through fear. I mean, this is a man who has survived the Borg, for God's sakes. So you can kind of see why that is. But it shows when he goes onto the bridge and just attacks one of the Duras sisters on the bridge of her own ship. Just because he's pissed off at her. And when she retaliates, he just says, you were careless. You know, I like that. I also like the fact that the Duras sisters are exactly in character here. Now, don't mistake. I actually kind of like the Duras sisters, especially the actresses who play them. One of them is actually in Voyager in the episode Random Thought. Um, they're <laughs> uh, dumb in character. In character, okay? I like the characters, but they are dumb. When I say that, what I mean is they are short-sighted. Duros himself was probably more long-sighted. I say probably because we only really see him twice. And uh, then... Actually, oh, I'm sorry, no, we only see him once, don't we? So we only hear about him and the house of Duros that endures in his legacy. So we're not actually sure if Duros was actually intelligent or not. But the Duros sisters are definitely not. And when I say that, what I mean is they are short-sighted. They are Darth Malak versus Darth Revan. Now, not as severe. And yet, at the same time, they kind of are. They want... They, they have obviously descended from... You know, they, they've, they were once the mighty heads of the House of Duras, and now... Then they were like, okay, the kind of slinking people who had some resources and access. And now they've got a ship and their own private crew that are loyal, and that's it. So they want to reclaim power. Okay, understandable. Why don't we get a weapon that can destroy stars? Let me put this into a little bit of context. Let's say there's a band of guys. Uh, we'll go ahead and say it's like 12 people. And they want to conquer, you know, Russia. Here on, the, here on Earth. So they've developed a weapon that can destroy a country. Surrender Russia to us. You're seeing the problem here? When you have a weapon of that level of, and scale of destruction, you only have two options. Threaten to use it, and then have everyone in the, in the entire world slash galaxy automatically your opponent, or actually use it and ruin what you're trying to conquer. <laughs> in the book, there's a line about how the Duras sisters will no doubt make quite a mess of the galaxy when he's gone. I tend to agree. I wouldn't put that kind of a weapon in their hands, because again, very short-sighted, but very in character for them. Um... Then there's that wonderful theme, then there's that thing, which I've already talked about. Uh, there's a scene that's actually lost in the thing where Soren tortures uh, Jordy with a probe that stops his heart. I've actually only seen bits of this scene. I've never seen the full scene, but I'm going to share with you what the scene was like in the book. Because again, this fleshes him out as a character. Soren, specifically. Soren tortures Jordy. Stops his heart. Now, I don't know if you know what it feels like to have your heart stopped. I don't, thank God. 
Um, but when it does, from every, from first first-hand accounts I've heard, it's like time freezes. No pun intended. It's literally like everything is just so horrible and terrible, and your brain is working in such active hyperdrive, basically, that you're perceiving time at a much different rate. So, yeah, it literally feels like seconds are agonizingly long because of how horrible it is, right? Uh, think about that next time you watch Death Note, by the way. So, um, he stops Jordy's heart for just a few seconds. And the heart can stop for some huge amount of time, like 40 seconds before he actually suffer brain damage. And so he's going to stop Jordy's heart for a long time unless Jordy tells him the stuff. So he starts the timer, start, you know, he's ticking, ticking away, and Jordy's like, Oh, God! And can't take it. And then Soren stops the thing and lies and says it's, it's been the full 40 seconds or whatever. And then Jordy says, I can't do anything, and Soren just leaves. And the whole point is Soren couldn't do it. Soren isn't actually an evil man in the books. He has, he has layers to him. He's fixated, of course, obsessed, but he doesn't actually want to be this horrible. The idea of killing people when they're distant, okay, he'll, he can at least rationalize that around. But uh, seeing a man in front of him, who he is torturing, it was too much for him. So he couldn't do it. It also explains where they get, uh, why they mention the line about removing the probe in the movie they mentioned that line and it kind of explains why he got the idea to put the thing in his visor so uh right this is probably a good time to talk about why soren's an idiot how did uh james t kirk get into the nexus well he was on a ship and then he got that part of that ship got destroyed violently and then he was tossed out into space and then got sucked up into the nexus so Kirk was on a ship and then went into the Nexus. How did the Elorians get into the Nexus? Well, they were on a ship, and they, you, you kind of see where I'm going with this. Why don't they just fly into it? Why doesn't Soren just get a ship or a shuttle? Or a frickin they, he, he can calculate the path of this thing exactly within the matter of meters. So why can't he just set up a thing where he goes, hey, and puts himself in position and waits there in a little flight suit and then goes into the Nexus? For God's sakes, man, why do you have to destroy stars... There's even a throwaway line. Trust me, this is the only way. This is executive meddling again, by the way. Uh, if you're paying attention, there's actually been like three instances of executive meddling as we've been going through this, but this is a big one because this is like the whole plot is affected by this. They wanted there to be a significant threat, but they didn't want the Romulan Empire to really have instance on it, and they wanted to do something unexpected. So, okay, why not have it so he's destroying stars to make the Nexus come to him? Now, on the surface level, this does make a degree of sense. However, when it's analyzed with even the tiniest bit of scrutiny, it makes absolutely no sense. It is incredibly stupid. I'm not going to talk about it any further. It just bugs the crap out of me. So, um, and, and I'm, I'm sorry, one other thing, one other thing. The, 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 the star is destroyed. You know, fusion stops, shockwave goes out. Uh, gravity is shifted. That makes sense. The mass is displaced. Why is it that the star is destroyed and the shockwave sent out and then the... the the, the the Nexus ribbon moves before the star has actually really started, like before the gravitational effects can even come into a place. Debatably before the light from that star would even reach the planet, but I'm not even going to talk about the fact that they see a missile reach the sun in like three seconds, and then like three seconds later they see the sun darken, despite how long it would take the light to reach from the sun to the... I'm not even going to get into that. Okay, let's let's not go there. Then, data pulls a sore, and he does not want to face what he does, what he does not want to face. He, he doesn't want to face his emotions. They're too much for him to overcome. 
Picard actually is the wonderful person to interact with Data in this scene because Picard has literally just gone through a situation where he himself has faced something horrible and terrible and has managed to deal with it, move on from it, accept it, and, and try to grow and learn from it. And so he is the perfect person to inform, to, to literally order and then support Data in doing the same. Because Data's in the exact same position that so many of the characters in this film are, really. They were faced with something that they couldn't deal with, or, or something horrible, something big, something traumatic, and Data couldn't cope. However, Data does cope, and then he starts singing about life forms, so, you know, whatever. So, I... <laughs> Alright, you guys know me. Sort of, at least. You know that ships are one of my big fanboyisms, arguably my only one. You know that I'm a huge ship guy. Uh, Real-life ships, science fiction ships, it doesn't matter. You know that I probably know how to actually tactically command a Galaxy-class cruiser with decent competence. Because that's that's my thing. That's like my big thing. I'm so into ships, right? I admit it freely. I'm pretty sure all of you, nevertheless, understand that an old D12 class uh, bird of prey, also known as a pile o' crap bird, uh, class bird of prey, is something that a galaxy class cruiser could curb stomp under virtually any circumstances. If you're paying attention in Star Trek two, three and uh, five and six there was an effort made to make the make the, balance the scales between the enterprise and their foe in in several of these cases i feel they did a good job in two three and six they did a good job of this right in five it was retarded in this one in generations it's retarded okay i want you okay we know that the ship's shields prevent most of the damage that comes in right but once those shields are down the ship takes lots of damage okay all right i'm with that so I want you to picture the Enterprise goes into battle with no shields against a, a Burrell, which has shields. Who do you think is going to win that battle? Now, if anybody out there is going to argue against me with this, don't bother. <laughs> you, you cannot convince me that an old Burrell could beat the Enterprise, even with the shield disparity, okay? I'm not even getting into the fact that they could just remodulate the shields, which is something which is really common and even done against the freaking Borg. Let's just ignore the possibility of remodulating the shields, okay? Totally ignoring that. Maybe they didn't realize that's how they were getting through. I don't know. I don't care. Leaving that one alone, imagine how much better it would have been if the Enterprise had just won this battle. I mean, yeah, tons of damage, still keep the work core, but turn around and put in the good fight and at a disadvantage against the horrible, you know, the cheating Klingon enemy, they still managed to bring the Burrell down and destroy it. Blah, 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 blah. Just like, you know, should have happened. Instead, I was actually keeping track. The Enterprise fires on that ship twice with phasers. And then the torpedo, which actually blows her up. Twice. Twice. When the Enterprise shot all weapons, you know, an Alpha Strike, on a Borg cube, it left craters. Remember that? It made the Borg pause for a second and go, okay, this is a freaking bird of prey. And I don't care which class it is, even the modern bird of prey, which are actually much, much more uh, advanced and powerful than these one, which this one is not, would still probably be a little bit, oh God, if, if the Enterprise had done an alpha strike against them. But no, instead the Enterprise fires their phasers once, and then a second time, and that's it. While doing the worst possible maneuvering possible, okay, here's the bird, 
Here's the galaxy. Okay, the galaxy slowly turns away to make sure most of its weapons are not faced towards it and gradually goes away at like a quarter impulse. Well, the bird just pecks at them. I don't even know what to say about this. This whole scene just, just gives me an aneurysm every time I watch it. Because then they do the worst thing possible. See, I mentioned the earlier thing. Why is it, from a structural perspective, let's deconstruct this, let's ruminate on this. Why is it that my earlier idea would be more satisfying to me and others I've discussed this idea with personally? I don't know if it would be more satisfying to you, because I don't know you. I have no idea who you are. Who are you? Why are you watching my channel? But I have talked about this with many other people, and most of those people have been, ah, that would have been much better, because the reason why is it's the Enterprise winning the battle successfully. They've earned it. They have earned their victory. They are working at a disadvantage, and they still pull out a victory. And that is much more satisfying than what they actually do, which is they cheat! The Klingons cheated, and the Enterprise says, no, 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 no. <laughs> I'll show you, Technobabble. And then the Enterprise, the Enterprise D, a Galaxy-class cruiser, Galaxy class cruiser, top of the line, flagship of the fleet, <laughs> cheats. They technobabble a solution. They technobabble a way to force the other ship to cloak because of blah, 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 and take him out with a single torpedo. I would have loved to see like a little coda at the end of this movie where there's the Admiralty board reading the notes and they look up at, at Riker and say, so, you lost the Enterprise to a bird of prey. An old bird of prey. That's right, sir. You're demoted. <laughs> I mean, just, God. That being said, the theme of loss once again comes in here. The loss of the te teddy, the little teddy bear, as they're evacuating the ship. But the loss of the Enterprise itself. The funny thing is, I mentioned earlier that they dwell too much on something, and it is the crash of the Enterprise. But it's weird because the scenes before they actually detach from the Enterprise, I feel those were basically perfect. The music, the energy, all the people evacuating, no time, get everyone over here, get in, we gotta get out, core breach imminent. All of that has all of the drama and pathos that it actually should. We get, a, we get the idea here. There's this wonderful moment, it's like half a second, when Jordy calls up and says, New problem, we've got a core breach and I can't stop it. And you see just there's this half a second of Freaks, who's playing Will Riker on the bridge. He just goes, as he realizes that for the first time, He's actually going to lose the Enterprise. This ship, which has carried them and done so much for them, is actually going to go blow. There's nothing they can do about it. And there's just this moment where he takes a breath like, like he feels that wound. And then they start dealing with it. I love that. And it, it again, carries that theme of loss and coping with loss and age. Because eventually, with enough time, everything fails on us, right? Time devourer of all things, that wonderful metaphor of Kronos. Um... And then Data says the infamous line, the second time that word has been said in, in the history of Star Trek, to my knowledge. And then the ship crash, which, you know, I just kind of hint, hinted at it for a moment there. The ship crash is actually really well done if it was about half as long. For those of you who don't know, they actually made a big old model of the saucer section and a big old terrain thing. And they filmed it with high shutter cameras so they could do it in different speeds. And they literally crashed the model into it, actually sent dirt flying, and then touched it up with CGI. Really well done effect, in all honesty... Bravo to them. They did a great job on the effects of it. The scene goes on, like I said, about twice too long. It just keeps going on and on and on. And this is what I meant earlier. If you dwell on it too much, it loses impact. And, I, and by the end of the scene, I was just bored. I'm like, okay, come on. 
crashed the ship already. Come on. Come on. No, we gotta show... Okay, come on. And so all of the impact that was had at the loss of the Enterprise up in space, in those scenes I mentioned earlier, and all the dread of, oh god, the Enterprise is about to crash on the Earth, is gone, evaporated by the end of the scene, because it took too long. They dwelled on it too much. So, that's what I was talking about earlier. Now... Another fun thing is that Picard's fighting Soren, and then, this is hilarious, I, I meant to count the number of seconds it takes Soren to defeat Picard, but it's, it's under a minute. It's like 20 seconds. Soren sees Picard, and Picard's like, I will stop you, and then Soren just, and then he wins. If not for the fact that the Nexus would have captured Picard, that would have been the end of it. The Nexus. The Nexus. First, I want to say there's an effective gut punch. After the Enterprise's crash, after all that they've gone through, after surviving, after escaping to the thing, after the destruction of the thing, the shot they have, and they show people walking on the saucer section in motion, and then the shockwave comes up and just obliterates it all. That was a very effective gut punch, and the fade to black was really well done, so props there. Uh, I'm going to talk about Picard really quick first. Some people ask why it is that Picard has the particular first fantasy that he does. And I want to stress that word, first. As we see with Kirk, if and it's implied, just about anyone would have more than one fantasy there, because that's how the Nexus works, right? I'll get to that in a minute. But you notice I keep saying the word fantasy. I've actually talked about this topic before. I enjoy Fallout 3. If I was given the option to actually live in the Capital Wasteland, I would say, God, no. If I was given the option to actually blow someone's head off, I would say, oh my god, what is your problem? Please get out of my house and stop asking me dumb questions. There is a huge, a chasm of difference between what we fantasize and enjoy in fantasy and what we want in real life. One of the things that I've always felt that they did unintentionally, and I credit this to Brennan Braga because this is his style, is that the Nexus gives us what we fantasize about as if it was reality but it is not what we really want in reality. Some people, that might be a good thing. For me, that would drive me insane. Uh, just, just personally. I've, I've thought about what my nexus would be. I'm not going to tell you. Um, it would be horrible. I, I, it would drive me nuts. I would want to leave. And of course I could, because that's how it works. But um, I mention this because Pic both of the men's fantasies that we do actually see very much demonstrate this. Picard's fantasy is the family life back at home he always wanted. Kids... You know, wife, Christmas morning. Kirk's is going back and rewriting all the wrongs in history. I'll talk about that more in a minute. But it makes perfect sense to me that Picard would have that. It's also interesting that some people have asked, why is it Picard could resist the Nexus? Well, I'm going to talk about a theory about that at the end of this video. So stick around for that. But the most obvious reason is because Picard's def most defining trait. I mentioned this earlier. His discipline. This is a man who has the mental discipline of a rock, and in a, in a good way. And so when he sees anything that reminds him of the reality of the, his situation, he realizes what's going on. He has to get back. He has to deal with this. He, he summons Guinan, okay? Guinan doesn't show up. He summons Guinan by by, because of the way the Nexus works, the whole pseudo-morphic responding to your wishes kind of a situation. Let's... Let's go ahead and let's talk about the Nexus. I've been hesitating with this. 
And the Nexus is dumb. The Nexus is retarded. It's an energy ripping that randomly flies through space that once you enter it, you enter another dimension where time has no meaning and you have total 100% Q-level morphic control over all of reality to indulge yourself in whatever fantasy you ever want and you don't age and you don't have to go to the bathroom and you don't have any problems whatsoever, pain, suffering, nothing, and you are, in Guinan's own words, wrapped in joy. I've heard some people compare this to heaven, but for me, that sounds a little bit more like hell. But again, I've already discussed that, because again, it's a fantasy. It goes out of its way to be a fantasy. Not what you actually want, but what you fantasize about wanting. Side little note, the gentleman who did the music for this movie, I forget his name, he does some pretty good work overall. He has this kind of tone that plays during sections of the Nexus to try and audibly get across the idea of the, and I'm going to say it this way, the spell that the Nexus is putting over the people in it. This strikes me much more of a Venus flytrap kind of a situation. Now, we know it isn't, because that wasn't the intent, but imagine, I mean, for God's sakes, what's the episode in uh, Voyager where they go into the, the, the spatial pitcher plant? You know what I'm talking about? It's that kind of a thing. You are wrapped in joy, so you are so enraptured in this, uh, you, you can't possibly resist it, and then you're, you know, eaten alive. Um, it, it gets across a bizarre sort of menace, a, a bizarre sort of dread and, and, and like, horror as, as the whole time I'm watching that. Maybe that's just me. Maybe that's just the way I took it. But anyways, so, yeah, the Nexus is retarded. Uh, as I've already mentioned, the original intention of the Nexus was not to be this. It was originally intended to just be a rip in time. If you think about this, this actually makes perfect sense. A singular rip in time that Kirk falls into and then falls out of at the end of the movie. That's the connecting point. It's this one rip. It's It goes away. Story done. But no, it's turned into this thing... <laughs> which, which, some, which, uh, God, I, ah, okay. Let's also talk about why it's dumb as a plot device, okay? The Nexus, time has no meaning, okay? You can also leave the Nexus at will. Um, I'm gonna ask the obvious question, how do you know you've left the Nexus? But I've actually already answered that question, and this is why I'm asking this obvious question, because I've heard that before. Because, you only get what you fantasize about in the Nexus. So if you leave and go into real life, you, you see where this goes. And of course, you can just test that. You're like, well, I want this to happen. No, nothing happens. So you could know you'd leave the Nexus. That's not the issue. But they're given control of the Nexus, which gives them command of all of time and space. Seriously. They can go wherever they want, whenever they want. Why the ticking clock? This is dumb for two reasons. One... They go back to when Soren is on the mountain, and they're there, and then they have to deal with him on his mountain lair, and, you know, all that fun stuff. And they're, they're this big... So, that's dumb at the beginning of it, okay? There are so many other things they could have done, like, I don't know, just spitballing here, thinking of one. If you don't want to go f too far back, Moore himself said that. Maybe Picard didn't want to go too far back. Moore himself said that was a poor excuse, by the way. But maybe that's the excuse. Well, why don't you just go f back a little bit? Go back a week, a day to when you're on the Enterprise, and so is Soren, on your ship, which is fully intact and fully aware and cognizant of everything that happens. So you go to Soren and say, Ah, you're under arrest. Bam! We win. No? Can't do that either. Okay, um, second question, second reason this is dumb. Why are they on a ticking clock at all? If everything goes bad and they can't stop Soren from launching the thing, they're still on the scaffolding. 
which is still the point at which they're going to get sucked into the Nexus. So if the Nexus comes by and, and Soren succeeds, they can just do it again. By the way, this is the other wonderful thing uh, that kind of makes a horrifying picture if you think about it. Picard effectively has infinity to defeat Soren, and Soren effectively can never win. The only way Soren could win with the way the chess pieces have been set up is if he manages to kill Picard before Picard goes into the Nexus. But Soren can't kill Picard because he is the original Soren. Timeline-wise, right? So he doesn't realize this is a Picard who's done this battle three or four times. So he's just trying to get him out of the way so he can launch the thing. And if Picard realizes he's losing, he could just get out of the way and survive until the Nexus comes in and he gets another go at it. He's got freaking quick save, for God's sakes. He could just reload and try the level again. God, I hate the Nexus. I could talk more ill of the Nexus, but I'm, I'm done with it. Moving on. There's a really good moment when Picard realizes it's Kirk. Patrick Stewart really gets across the momentum, momentum of that scene in the silence of the, of the hills of... Uh, uh, I can't think of the mountain range all of a sudden. The mountain range. I can't think of it. Um, Yosemite, there we go. Of Yosemite. And... He just says under his breath, J Kirk, James T. Kirk. You know, the reverence there was obvious. And I like that. It's probably one of the really uh, good moments between the two. There was also some really good dynamic between Kirk and Picard. I like it because on first glance it seems weird. But on second analysis, or however many times I've watched this film, I've watched this film a lot, um, it's really obvious that there's a lot of genuine uh, chemistry between the two. Um, and there's a lot more going on under the surface. Kirk has just gotten here just like Picard did. So Kirk is still fully in the spell of the Nexus, right? You know, the pitcher plant. And so Picard is someone who's already broken it. He is no longer tempted by the fantasy. But remember the way this film was supposed to start. The way this film was supposed to start was Kirk leaping, doing an orbital dive. Uh, orbital skydive. Think about how horrifyingly dangerous and awful that is. Excuse me. I mention this, though, because it's integral to understand what was going on with Kirk in his mind at this point in time. He was escaping. That was the fantasy. He doesn't actually want to go orbitally skydive. He wants to get back on his frickin' bridge and make a difference. Now, that's what he ends up actually doing. But you get the, di the dichotomy is right there in the, beginning of the, in the beginning of the film. He does the fantasy. It's unsatisfying. He hates it. He's just, eh, whatever. Then he goes on to the bridge. Now, they replaced that with the champagne glass in the actual movie, but just bear with me. So, this was the original construction intent of the film. So, Kirk does that, then he gets on the bridge, actually makes a difference, goes down, saves the Enterprise, dies trying. That was what he really wanted. Then he gets into the Nexus. Well, what's the first thing he does? He embraces the fantasy. I'm going to go back and I'm going to make it all right this time. I'm going to do it better. No mistakes this time, right? That's a fantasy. That is Kirk's fantasy. It is not what he really wants. And it takes very little for Kirk to realize that on his own. All he has to do is realize that there is no possibility of danger or threat because of that subconscious reality. See, let's say you're on a holodeck. Bear with me here. And you've got the safeties on and you do something dangerous. It's not going to be as enjoyable if the as if the safeties were off. And you know why? Because you know the safeties are on. I know this sounds weird, but it's true. Think about this. Your mind changes the experience because of your perception on the matter. You understand that there is no real danger here. This is not real. And because it's not real, your mind comprehends it as not real. This is actually the opposite, exact opposite of what happens in the Matrix. Your mind making it real, right? So Kirk, as he does that jump, it's not real. There's no risk. 
but what Kirk has always wanted is the real. This is the only way it really helps continue Kirk's theme at all. It's been mentioned that Kirk, this, this movie runs in contrast to the theme of Kirk's arc from Star Trek 1 to 6, but it really doesn't because Kirk's arc has always been about making a difference, doing that thing, doing the real thing, being the hero, right? When, when he realizes the reality of the situation he's in, it takes no time at all to convince him to leave. Why wouldn't he? He wants to go do real things, not fantasize about doing them. I also really like the fact that there's a tiny little thing in the fact that at first glance it seems like Kirk is completely ignoring Picard, but he really isn't. If you pay attention to the dialogue, Kirk is actually registering everything Picard says, and he demonstrates this through the through the dialogue as they go. It's Kirk is just like, I'm ignoring you, I'm ignoring you, I'm ignoring you, and then he'll mention something that Picard said because he was paying attention. I like that because it's very Kirk. It's one of the things he's always been good at, thinking on his feet and paying attention. That was really on display in Star Trek VI, for example. Um, the, one other little tidbit, uh, there's a woman named Antonia, who apparently Kirk was get, going to marry nine years prior to this film, uh, from his perspective, however long Generations is from six. Who's Antonia and where'd she come from? Oh, you don't know? Well, her name is actually Carol Marcus. This is another bizarre instance of executive meddling because Paramount adamantly insisted that it not be Carol Marcus. We don't know why, to my knowledge. If, if you understand why, feel free to share it with me. I mean, not, not speculation, I mean, if you actually have the reasoning. Because Carol Marcus would make, I don't know, infinitely more sense than random girl we've never heard of. Think about the situation. Nine years ago probably would have been, theoretically either right before Star Trek VI or right after it. So a point in time which Kirk was basically thinking about bowing out. And that's a time, time frame at which, or not VI, I meant, uh, I meant one, Star Trek one. That's a time frame in which uh, Kirk would have been actually still interacting with Carol Marcus and probably would have, you know, been willing to go ahead and finally put his life aside and be with her and decided instead to go ahead and do what he's always been good at, you know, calivanting around the galaxy, as she put it. So that would have made much more sense than woman we've never heard of and indeed we'll never hear of again, I feel like pointing out. I already mentioned the why is Picard in a hurry thing because he's got the quick save button. The, God, do I have, like, nothing left here? I've already talked about all this stuff. Oh, my God, I really have. Okay, so let's, let's, let's wrap this up, okay? Um, let's wrap this up. I mentioned there's three big themes in this, this uh, I keep wanting to say game, in this movie. The idea of the generations thing, the legacy thing. Oh, that's right. I do have one other thing. Do I not have a note about that? I don't think I wrote a note down. How funny. I do have one other thing to talk about. Anyways, the three themes. Let's go over the three themes first. Um, the legacy thing, it's all over the place. I've already mentioned that. The generations thing. Making a difference is the other theme, the quiet theme. The difference between reality and fantasy. We see this in Kirk. We see this in Guinan and Soren. We see this in Picard. We see this in Data. We see this in Geordi. We see this throughout the course of this thing. We even see it when it comes to the dumb scene on the boat, the one and only way it actually ties in, in a tiny little way, in that the humor was real with Worf, but fake with Crusher. You see how that ties in? These themes go throughout the entirety of the work of this piece, and it's probably one of the things that really helps elevate it, in my opinion. But uh, 
it really all comes together with Kirk's death at the end. And, of course, I'm lying through my teeth. Let's skip Kirk's death for a moment. Just bear with me. Um, let's go to the one last scene that I really, really like in this movie, and that's the scene where Picard, Patrick Stewart, does some really interesting body language. I don't even know how to demonstrate it. Just watch the scene where he's standing at full attention, in full honor and respect, head bowed just slightly at Kirk's grave. That one scene probably does more than anything else in this entire movie to really understand the gravity of, of Kirk's death, and Stewart really did a good job with that. <sighs> Ugh. Let's talk about Kirk's death. Ugh. I already talked about my theory of what the original death was supposed to be. Kirk dying, saving the Enterprise D in the future, right? We also know what the original death was because it was actually filmed. Soren shoots Kirk in the back. That's it, by the way. Because it's unexpected. Jerry Taylor. Because it's something you wouldn't expect. Kirk just gets shot. Now again, there is something to be said for that. Defenders of Tasha Yar's death use this exact same thing. Space is dangerous, and every now and again someone needs to die just for no reason, because that's what happens in real life. Okay. Could you at least try to weave that into the narrative thematically or otherwise? Because they didn't. Kirk just died, because it was unexpected. And again, that's what my point was. Doing the unexpected for the sake of doing the unexpected results in that. So... Now, here's the brilliant part about this, because I was talking about this with Pax just, a, just like an hour or two ago, how long it's been now. The original death was changed because Paramount told them to change it. They wanted to change it to that, and then Jerry Taylor said, make it something unexpected. So the change was put in, the death was filmed, they did the screening, test screening, and everyone hated it. All the test audiences said, no, no, no. Kirk should die on the bridge. Okay? So, um, Paramount then turned to them and said, your ending sucks. Fix it. Credit where credit was due. They were given a $5 million budget, which is actually pretty hefty, to reshoot the ending and give Kirk a different death. However, this was quite a bit of time, several months actually, after the, all the editing and, and, and work had been done on that, all the filming had been done, and they had to work within the same confines. They weren't allowed to actually change anything, so he still had to die on the mountainside, and he, they couldn't actually give him a satisfying death. And uh, Moore and Braga both talked about how they just agonized over this. They couldn't do anything with it. They could not do anything with it. And then Moore himself said, well, we've got a gag we could do. Because they wanted Kirk to die on the bridge, right? So Kirk dies on a bridge. We crash. That's so stupid that I don't have words. I, I meh, meh, nope, done, done, can't do it. I, I can't do it. I can't analyze that. That's retarded. No, I'm, I'm sorry. I mean no offense to people who have retardation. That's dumb. That is so dumb. Killing off a cultural icon by shoving him off a bridge is dumb. Shooting him in the back, that was also dumb. It's all dumb. Okay? <laughs> It's the biggest reason why this movie flopped, critically and financially. It's the biggest reason why Generations has received so much ire over the, over the years. Because if Kirk had a satisfying death, all the other issues would be much easier to bypass. I've said this before. If you take a work and then duplicate it, 
So it's the identical work. And then you make this one have a few changes in it that make this one just better, you know, better receive, better ending, or better construction, or whatever. This work will still have all the flaws that this one does, but this one will be much better received because you're more willing to accept those flaws because the good outweighs the bad. However, when you have nothing but flaws and then something bad happens, or I shouldn't say anything about when you have these flaws and then something bad happens, that makes the flaws worse. That's one of the reasons so many people are so critical of this film because it's it's a it's a it has a lot of flaws in its construction, and then Kirk dies stupidly. Shatner himself was apparently very upset about this, and I don't blame him. Shatner certainly is a bit of an egomaniac, although that cooled down a lot after Star Trek V, um, as I talked about. But the fact of the matter is, I don't blame him at all for the book series he did. Uh, I'm not sure if I recommend them, but for those of you who don't know, uh, Shatner and Oh, I can't think of their names. Uh, two wonderful authors basically collaborated to do the Shatner, uh, the Kirk series of books. A series of books that kept on from generations where Kirk was basically brought back from the dead and continued to have adventures, and it was actually really awesome, all things considered. I liked it. At the time, I was like, oh, wow, that's some you know ego stroking. But when I actually thought about it, I was like, no, you know what? That actually makes perfect sense. Why? Because his death was the most unsatisfying tripe I could imagine. It's pretty much exactly what happened to Tasha Yar, except it was Kirk instead of someone who was basically a glorified extra in season one. And I mean no offense to Tasha Yar or Denise Crosby for that, by the way. That was not her fault. I'll talk about that later. Hopefully. <laughs> so the death thing was dumb. I literally don't know what else to say there. Forgive me for the repetition. Let me share my final thoughts. Y'all want me to do something different, unexpected. Okay, done. Here's a different script idea for you. Remove Kirk from the end of the movie. Change nothing else. Problem fixed. For those of you who have seen my streams a lot, you know that I like to play the change game, which is take a work, game, book, movie, and the idea is to change it to make it better, as much more better, I know that's improper grammar, but as much of an improvement to the work as you can with as few changes as possible. The ideal goal being to change a work with only one change, that then makes the work significantly better. I've played this game with Phantom Menace, for example. Make Anakin older. Bam. That makes it so much better. Two changes. Make, make him older and make Jar Jar proper. Bam. You know, that kind of a thing, right? Generations. There's, there's my change game. One change. Remove Kirk from the end of the movie. Why? Because all of a sudden, it fits in ways that I can't even imagine were, were accidental, but maybe they were. I don't even know. Think about this for a moment. Kirk, a man who has been... I remember everything I was talking about. He is a man who is indulging in fantasies specifically because he is escaping from the fact that he can't do what he really wants to do, is given the chance to do so, comes out of retirement, comes out of the fantasy, forces himself to do it, lays down his life for the flagship of the Federation, saves their lives, and in so doing, touches the life of one person, Guinan. Fast forward. A lot. Picard goes through the movie is, is, and, and deals with the situation, goes through the Nexus, finds the will to break himself out, return to the reality to make a difference, and you get where I'm going with this. The idea being that instead of Picard actually meeting Kirk, he is inspired by Kirk. He actually gets to... He knows what happened in that mission. Remember, there's all those recorders there. So he knows what happened on Kirk's mission, and he is inspired by that idea. They don't even need to say this. This is why I say this is just one change. You don't need to add any additional scenes. Picard just decides of his own free will to leave the Nexus to go back and stop Soren this time, right? Does so, succeeds, saves the ship, saves the people, 
Saves the random strangers who are innocents. Same kind of concept. You don't need to directly tie the two together. You don't need a scene where Picard sees sees Kirk in the distance or, you know, he sees scenes from Enterprise B. That's unnecessary because the implication is there. It is the ideal. It is the thematic undercurrent that ties the two events together. Kirk dies in the first ten minutes. But his legacy lives on. And that's the big theme, remember? Generations. Kirk died handing off the torch. Picard lives having received it. One change. Bam. There's your unexpected change, guys. There you go. You think I'm a typical author? Screw you. <laughs> Let me know what you think. And feel free to play the change game with me. I'll see you next time.